How many of you can claim you're a child of God, secure and free? I, I love the scripture says we are joint heirs with the Son, joint heirs with Christ. And not only are we brought into the family, but we're declared to be a joint heir with our brother Christ to the Father God. What an amazing truth, what an amazing reality to live in the freedom by which Christ has set us free. Would you bow with me as we pray, as we dive into the word this morning together. God, we want to thank you for the truth of that song that we just sang, that we don't have to be slaves to fear. We don't have to be slaves to sin. We don't have to be held in bondage by the chains of religiosity and effort and, uh, Lord, our own thinking. But, God, we can be set free in your name so that we can worship in spirit and in truth so that we could worship you in the way that we were meant to worship you, unashamedly, unabashedly, so focused and, and secure and, and free. And so God, we thank you for that freedom that we stand in, by which you, Christ, has made us free. Thank you that we don't have to be entangled in the yoke of bondage again. And so God, we pray for many that maybe feel, even throughout our region, the chains of bondage of sin and self. God, we pray you will release captives this morning. God, I want to pray for our churches around the community. God, there are many that are proclaiming your truth and working diligently for your kingdom's sake. God, we lift them up. We, Lord, I think of Berean Baptist, and I think of Mosaic, and I think of uh, Church Requel, and Lord, I think of Abundant Tabernacle, Ontario Christian Fellowship. Lord, some of those churches in transition. Lord, I think of, of Storyside Church, and Lord, many others throughout our community that are, are proclaiming and doing your work. God, we pray uh, for our fellow brothers and sisters. God, we pray for our region. We believe that you are doing something in our region. God, you're uniting hearts and bringing focus, and God, you're saving lives. And so, Lord, as we gather, we pray that you would work in a way that only you could work. That, that Lord, we would decrease so that you may increase, that you may get all glory and honor of what you're worthy of. All for your name, Jesus Christ, the founder, the president, the CEO of the church, the one who promised not only you died and, and, and rose again, but promised one day to come again, to take us to your own and set up your kingdom. God, we look to you in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you want to take your Bibles out with me here this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 812, Matthew chapter 7. As you turn there, I want to I just say one quick thing. We've got an exciting Easter services planned, four services here at Park Avenue, two services in Shelby. We're really excited about what God is going to do through those services. And I don't know if you know this or not, but 80% of people would actually come to church if they were invited. They've done polls, and they've realized that 80% of people that are in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, they would actually attend church if only they were invited. So when we think of Christmas and Easter, one of the things that we do is we put together a program that really will share the gospel in very, very clear ways to engage those who do not know Christ. And so we're going to ask you, would you be willing to take that, that little insert in your program and invite one person to come join you for Easter at Crossroads? If you're bold enough and daring enough, as you leave, there are more cards out there. Would you be willing to pass those out to more people? To invite more people to come to hear the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. We're excited about what God has put together for us, and we believe God is going to work greatly. Good Friday service as well, and then next weekend uh, through our Easter at Crossroads services. So we hope you'll invite somebody. 80% said they would come if they were only invited. So Take the boldness, go invite some neighbors, invite some family, invite some friends, 
have them come and join you for Easter at Crossroads. It's going to be fantastic. Well, we're diving in here, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to end our series this morning uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. We have an exciting series planned that we'll let you know about in the next couple of weeks. Exciting series you're not going to miss after Easter. It's going to really hit home for a lot of us, uh, a lot of what we're dealing with as people. And so we hope you'll join us for that. We've called it the Empty Series. And it's going to be a, a, lot of, a lot of fun and a lot of eye-opening things we're going to be looking at through the Scripture. But we're in this series through the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know about you, but it has not been an easy series. I mean, every week it, it feels like one week is a left hook. The next week is like a right punch. And what we're going to find today is the uppercut. This has not been easy. This has been a very difficult text. It really goes right in the face of our culture, right in the face of our own spiritual lives. What we find in the Sermon on the Mount, the, 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 really the preeminent sermon of Jesus, it is his, his first inaugural address. It is an enduring message that had been studied and copied and talked about for centuries now. And what we find is Jesus unplugged. We find Jesus uncensored. Jesus giving us what it looks like to be kingdom people. What does it look like to really live in the kingdom of Jesus? What does it look like to follow him? What does it look like to obey him? What does it look like to reflect him greatly? That's what this sermon series has all been all about. As we said last week, what Jesus is doing is he is confronting a religious community that has grown cold. A religious community, the Jewish people, that now were living with a religious veneer, a religious mask. They were doing religious things, and yet their hearts were far from God. And we said last week that, that many of us can live in that same way. We can have right actions and the wrong motives. Or we can have the right motives, but not do anything about it. If you have right actions without right motive... It's not obedience. You could do the right things, but the heart be far from God, and that's not obedience. You could have the right motive, but do nothing, and all you're doing is growing apathetic. And so Jesus confronts both of these ideas. In fact, for most of us, as we, as we journey through there, I don't know about you, but I felt like one moment I feel inadequate, like I can't do this. This is way too much for me. And on the other side, I feel like, oh, oh man, I, I feel motivated. I feel inspired by Christ. Can I tell you, that is exactly the point of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, can I say that is the point of Christianity? What God does is he at times helps us see our inadequacies, see our weaknesses, see where we can't do it so that we reach out to him in faith and in response he builds motivation, he builds inspiration, he moves us into the direction of obedience. That is faith. Faith is declaring, God, I can't, and then Jesus saying, well, let me do it through you. That's what Christianity is. The life the, the life of Christ is a life of inadequacy built in confidence in what Jesus can and does do in and through our lives. Now, here this morning, we're going to look at this last passage. And can I tell you, this truly is the uppercut. This is the knockout blow of this sermon. Th this is not an easy section that we're going to walk through. It is extremely difficult. Not because it's not easy to understand but because it's packed with, with, with a bit of confrontation against our culture. It goes against the grain of our nerves. It goes against the grain of our lives. 
I remember years ago when I started in ministry as a lead pastor, I was 28 years old, and I went to my hometown. I was a young adult pastor up until then, and I remember, you know, I went to the church. It was, it was founded by my, my youth pastor growing up, and he founded the church, and then he became a missionary, and so I went to become uh, a lead pastor. I remember thinking, man, I want to be able to use the coolest techniques, and I want to make sure, man, people want to, I want to attract people to the church, and I remember kind of walking through that stage, and, and after about two years of that, I really felt burdened and overwhelmed that I looked out at people and didn't think they were really understanding what, what Christ wanted to do in their lives. And one of the reasons was because I had set up to try to be really cool and, and hip, and you look at me, I'm not really cool and hip anyway, but I was trying to be that as a church. And I remember it was this passage that we're about to read. I was walking through the book of Matthew, and this passage just ripped my heart, gripped my soul. And change my perspective. It's one of the reasons why I truly believe in kind of expositional preaching. What do I mean? That we walk right through a text. You know why we do that at Crossroads? Because we're not afraid to talk about the difficult subjects. When you walk expositionally through a text, you are forced to see things and talk about things that you'd rather not talk about. Things that are not attractional. Things that actually separate and divide. Things that cause kind of controversy in our hearts. Things that want to make us run instead of bring us in. And so we're going to read this text. We're going to ask, can God do the work that only he can do in our hearts? And this isn't an easy listening text. It's not, a, it's not a culturally acceptable text. It's not an attractional text. It is a text that should ruin us a bit, cause us to question, and then put us back together in what God wants to do through us. Jesus is going to bring this home with a heart check so deep. It's like the intricacy of heart surgery in our souls. Take a look with me, Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 13. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Behold of false prophets, beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do so many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And then it says in chapter 8 verse 1, and when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Wow. Really doesn't need much explanation, does it? It's pretty straightforward, pretty heartfelt. What we find in this text is 
really three warnings followed by 14 different contrasts. In fact, when I was studying this, this, I couldn't help but to think of a a trip I took years ago. Um, This is decades ago now. I took a trip to uh, Niagara Falls. It was a kind of a youth trip that we were on, a young adult trip, and we were at Niagara Falls, and, and Niagara Falls is one of the most beautiful places, I mean, it's amazing, the power of the falls, 165 feet in the air, and they drop over, and just the power of, of listing that water just reach the rocks beneath, but if you, you're on the Canadian side, and you walk up the river a ways, there's an area about not quite a half mile, maybe, maybe in between a quarter and a half mile, up the way, where you can actually get out on a bridge before the falls happen, and you can look and walk out on that bridge and watch boats fishing. Because of the, the churning of the water upriver, there's a, a quite a bit of fishing spots that are very successful. And so fishermen, boaters, love to go there. As I walked out on the pedestrian walkway, there was a very interesting sign. It's very intriguing. And it was meant to be for voter, uh, boaters. And it said this. Two questions. It said, do you have an anchor? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, if you don't have an anchor... You're going to float down, and eventually you're going to drop 165 feet over the falls to death. So the first question, do you an anchor? The second question that's asked on the sign is, do you know how to use it? <laughs> oh, but isn't that, isn't that amazing? Do you have an anchor, and do you know how to use it? You have no anchor. If you have an anchor and don't know how to use it, your death is coming. I believe Jesus here is giving us warnings that describe this same reality. Do you have an anchor? Do you know what it is? Do you have an anchor? Do you know how to use it? I want to look at these three warnings together and 14 different contrasts that we're going to see all throughout this text. Number one, that we see a warning about the path. And the question that is answered is, what path are you on? What path are you on? He gives us a warning about this path, and he asks the question, what path are we on? Now, in the first century, this would have made sense to them. This picture of the path made perfect sense in their minds because uh, they lived in a culture where there were many different types of highways. In fact, the Greeks built highways, and then the Romans perfected those highways. And along those highways, these wide, wide roads, the reason why they built them was so that they could lead their army into any city throughout the Roman Empire in case there was a, a, a dissension or something that stands against them. If there was going to be a coup, they could walk into the city and march their armies, armies very quickly into the city. So they built these magnificent, beautiful roads uh, that would travel all the way from the Roman Empire all the way throughout the empire. And it was meant to be traveled by chariots and, uh, and, and horses and centurions all traveled that. But along the side of those roads, there would be these little walkways. These were the original paths. And these walkways would take you into little towns and villages along the side of big cities. And much of these paths had been overgrown and, un- and they were covered up. You really couldn't see them very well. And so Jesus paints this picture that there's a, a big gate and there's a small gate. There's a wide gate and a small gate. In fact, there, there are highways had a system where when you entered a city, there was a sign over the city that said what city you were entering. They were the green signs before the green signs were green signs on the highway. They had these highways. They, they, they were the precursor of the highways that we have, like Interstate 71, Interstate 30, right? These highways that have these signs. But along the way, there are these small little paths, these little roads that are barely seeable, but they lead somewhere. So Jesus uses this analogy to make a point. Notice the implication, he says, verse 13, is that everybody is on a path. Every single person here is on a road. The question is, how many roads are there? 
Our culture would say to us, well, there are many paths, there are many roads. We hear that in our culture, right? There are many ways to God, and there are many ways to life, and there are many ways to best life, and there are many ways, right? There are many different paths. In, in Jesus' words, notice, there's but two. There are two paths, not many paths. There are two paths, and he describes them in detail. Notice it, verse 13. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Notice those descriptions. First of all, this wide path is easy. It's not hard. It's easy. Secondly, notice it leads to destruction. It screams life. It says, come, follow me. There's life here. But then it does a bait and switch, and actually it leads to death. And then he says, and there are many who take it. There are many who walk on that path. There are many who go that way. Jesus here is giving this tragic picture of the vast number of people who follow the crowd, doing what everyone else is doing, taking the easy and enjoyable path, but don't even realize there's an impending doom waiting. There's destruction waiting ahead. And this is the way many of us journey through our lives. Because our natural tendency is to gravitate toward that which is easy, and popular. It is our natural bend to gravitate to those things which are easy and popular. Isn't it true? I mean, most of us here, we want the easy path. We resist pain. We don't want agony. We don't want difficulty. No, no, we resist those things. We cringe at it. We run away from it. I mean, just practically, think about how we drive. I don't know about you, but I live in Lexington, and, and when I drive home, I would rather drive a longer way but keep moving than drive a shorter way where I have to stop. Anybody else like that? You would take a longer way someplace, as long as you don't have to stop for any reason, than the shorter way if it's going to cause you to have to stop. I want to feel like I'm conquering. I want to feel like I'm moving. I want to feel like the path doesn't end. Any other guys out there like me? <laughs> Thank you, guys. I didn't want to feel alone, right? I just want to feel like I'm moving. I want to feel like I keep going. My wife uh, makes fun of me for this and says, Dave, why don't we take the shorter way home? No, no, no. I want to keep going. I want to go where I can go fast. The faster, the better, even if it takes longer, because I'll cut off that time, and it's a bit of a challenge for me. <laughs> see, see, we like the easier path. We, we don't like the path that has stops and curves and bumps and difficulties along the way. No, no, no. We want what is easy, and we also want what is popular. This is our nature. We follow where other people go. In fact, in the psychology world, they call it the bandwagon effect. The bandwagon effect is this idea that if, if the popular people follow it, if somebody goes that way, and most people go that way, the, the natural tendency is the rest of the majority will follow that way. We see this in our culture today. In fact, psychologists have done studies on this, and they use actually directions on a road and they had a direction that said to, to get someplace, go this way, and that was the place they were supposed to go, but because every other car went another way, everybody followed the other way. They've done studies on this that we follow like the bandwagon effect. Or let me do it this way. How many of you are now Cleveland Brown fans, now that they're good? <laughs> it's the bandwagon effect. Or take, for example, the popularity of clothing. Right, clothing is, is popular. Think about there are clothes that we wear that were never intended to be worn. Some of you have weird images in your mind. Let me give you one example. <laughs> Denim. 
Denim was actually not created to be worn by people. It was created to help resist water from sailors on a ship. It was actually meant to cover over uh, a product that would be traveled throughout throughout the world. And so they would cover it with denim, thinking that denim would resist water. It would hold in the water, and then it would dry out. Now, you and I know that doesn't work, does it? And somehow along the way, then they ended up wearing it as sailors, thinking it would resist the water. And slowly it became a fashion statement. Everybody wears denim today, but it was not the original intent. You and I, by nature, follow what is popular. I remember my mom saying this to me when I was younger. She would say, Dave, if everybody jumps, are you going to jump? What is the point? We follow what is popular. So Jesus says, We take the easy road. The majority of people take the easy road, the road of conformity. The problem is we don't understand the danger that's lurking ahead, and it leads to destruction. So Jesus gives us a picture of another gate. By the way, notice there's two gates. That gate is every other way of the world, every other way of the culture, every other way of society. You put anything in that, that is the wide gate that leads to destruction. There's two gates. There are not many. There's two. The second one he describes differently. Notice verse 14. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Notice his description. This way is narrow. It's not easily seen. It's cut out along the highway. It's not noticeable by the naked eye, but if you know it's there, it's there. By the way, I know I've traveled to many places around Latin America, and one of the things I've noticed in many of those countries is you can drive down a highway, and then there are all these little paths off the highway. And I remember in, being in Nicaragua, and uh, I've spent a lot of time there. And I remember uh, we would stop at a place, and we would stop along the highway on the shoulder. And then we would get out, and we would walk down this path, or even take a little car down the path. And we would get down the path, and it was like in the middle of nowhere, and then it opened up into another village or city. Like it was sitting right there, and you never saw it from the major highway. It was unseen. That's the image here, right? There's a narrow path, and it takes you in a different direction. The direction it takes you is life. It's not easy. It's actually difficult. It, it goes up and down and around and twists and turns and challenges the difficulties. It requires intentional steps, but it leads to life. And then he says, and there are few that find it. The vast majority of people don't pay attention to it. The vast majority of people are careless toward it. Now, I want us to think about this. We know the answer of this. This is obvious. We don't have to guess what this is. Jesus is talking about himself. He's talking about that he is the way. We know this. But I want to think about culture for a second, or the culture that we live in. Think about our culture. Our culture would say, it is okay to search after your path. Search your path. Find your direction. Find your purpose. The culture has no problem saying, find your path. What our culture has a problem saying is when we say we found the path and believe it's the right one. Isn't it true? Our culture will say, search your path out. But the moment we say, I've got the path, it's Jesus. Now all of a sudden, we become narrow-minded. We become short-sighted. We, we become uh, an outcast, counter-cultural. Isn't that true? They're okay with it. The culture's okay with us searching the path as long as we don't claim to know the path. Then we have an issue. See, Jesus here is making a very distinct statement. He is making a very, uh, a very statement that declares himself as the path. 
In fact, this is seen all throughout the scripture. Nowhere in the Bible is universalism taught. Nowhere does the Bible teach that everybody goes to heaven. In fact, Jesus speaks it, Peter speaks it, and Paul speaks it. Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, it says there is salvation in no one else. Peter here preaching, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Can I tell you, Jesus' teachings are crystal clear when it comes to his authority. He is exclusive and he is restrictive. He is the only way, he is the one road you and I are called to follow. Jesus flips the script on the religious leaders. What do I mean? Isn't it interesting? He says there is a way that is wide. But that wide way leads to a narrow reality. This wide path leads to the narrow reality of judgment, the narrow reality of condemnation, the narrow reality of destruction. But the narrow path, it's not easy, very few find it, the narrow path actually leads to the broad, wide life of freedom. It leads to the path that gives life and life abundantly. See, Jesus flips the script on the thought that you would have that a narrow path would lead to nowhere. The narrow path leads to where we want to be. By the way, notice, Jesus just doesn't say there's two paths, good luck. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, there's, there, there's two paths, hope you find one. Go back to verse 13 for a moment. He says, enter by the narrow gate. This is an imperative, it's a command. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Jesus in great love and grace, says to the people listening, here is the way, enter the narrow path. Don't take the wide path that leads to destruction, take the narrow path, he commands them to do it. He warns them about the path and says, what path are you on? He, he then moves from this picture of direction to the picture of voice. What are we listening to? What voice is telling us which path to go on? Take a look at what he says next in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He gives us a warning about fruit. This is point two, a warning about fruit. And it's going to answer the question, who are you really? Who are you really? What voices are you listening to? So he says, there are wolves that look like sheep. Uh, this word ravenous wolves literally means they're thieves. So they come in and they try to they try to steal. They try to right. We see in the scripture the enemy steals, kills, and destroys. That's the image. That's a ravenous wolf, and this ravenous wolf is dressed in sheep's clothing. In our culture today, we see wolves all the time. Wolves that are trying to pull us off the right path. Wolves that are trying to distract us. Wolves that are trying to direct us opposite of the way God wants us to go. We we see this. It happens in other people. Right, there are other people that are these voices that speak opposite of the scripture. They speak opposite of the gospel. There are other voices of culture, of society, of ideologies in our world. All of these. We can go down the line of many of these type of things. By the way, I don't even need other people to lead me astray. I don't know about you. I have, I have this battle with my flesh. I don't need other people's help. I don't even need an enemy's help. I've got the battle of the flesh and the spirit happening inside of me constantly. And so I can lead myself astray if I'm not careful. I can become a wolf in sheep's clothing in my own life. 
And so Jesus here says there are wolves. Now, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't dwell on the identity of these wolves. What he does is he dwells on what the fruit of the wolf is. Notice the focus here is not false prophets. The, the, the point is the fruit. Notice what he says. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Grapes don't gather from thorn bushes. Figs don't come from thistles. A healthy tree bears good fruit, and an unhealthy disease tree bears bad fruit. Then he comes to verse 20, and notice he repeats it. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So there's some that pretend to be sheep, but then prove themselves to be wolves. See, the test of whether something or someone is real is by the fruit it bears. Words alone are not sufficient. Actions must follow. Words and talk are cheap. Anyone can claim to believe anything, but what happens afterwards is what matters. That's the point. You will recognize them by their fruit. It's not what a prophet says, it's how a prophet lives that matters. And so Jesus is going to the heart of this, and he's saying what matters is act, act, action, activity, response, obedience. Now, the Bible, what I love about the Bible is it knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember, almost all of these people that he's talking to have a religious background. They're Jews. They, they grew up obeying the law and following the religious duties required of the judicial law and the ceremonial law and the Levitical law. And, and so they understood this. So they would have heard this and go, well, well praise God, I'm not a wolf. Like, I do a lot of good things for God. I do great things for God. I know who God is, and I act in obedience. So Jesus, in addressing the religious community, says, okay, there are wolves that are trying to pull you away. You don't even know who they are yet, some of them. And then he says, but there's also a wolf in you. Notice what he says next. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What a bold statement. By the way, the word Lord here is the word kurios. Kyrios was the, the name of God in, in the name of the Lord in, in Greek, but it was used also as, as, a, as a description of the emperor Caesar. Uh, Caesar was called Kyrios, Lord. And the way you would distinguish if you were talking about Christ would be you would say Kyrios Christos, Christ the Lord, Lord Christ. You would describe who he is. So there's a generic form of this. And so some scholars think it's actually a point that they're not really saying for sure that Christ is Lord, they're just saying to God whoever he is. But even if it is God, whoever that God is, if it is the one true God, as Jews would have believed, he's confronting a reality of the heart, isn't he? Notice what he says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, and notice it, lawlessness. You, you, you're working without a law. There's no boundary to your life. What, what, is, what is Jesus getting at here? I mean, I read this and it haunts me a bit. What does this mean for our life? What Jesus is saying is there are people that will say, well, God, look at all that I'm doing for you. Look at all I'm accomplish, accomplishing for you. See, the problem is not inactivity and the problem is not passivity. No, the problem is there's people that are incredibly busy doing all sorts of things in the name of Jesus. But their spiritual success, they think, leads them to a spiritual relationship. See, they, 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 they're near spiritual things, they see spiritual things, they do spiritual things, and Jesus says, whoa, whoa, not so fast. He says, in fact, you may be working lawlessness. You may be working as if there isn't a law. Ponder that statement for a moment. Isn't that stunning? 
Why did Jesus say this? I want you to notice the emphasis of this text. It's eye-opening. Why would Jesus say, depart from me, to those type of people? They're doing good things. But notice the emphasis, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did who? We, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we, and in the Greek it continues, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many works in your name? Who are they claiming does the work? Them. See, the issue is now the emphasis of this text is they're no longer looking to bring glory to God. No, they're using the name of the Lord to bring themselves glory. They're saying, okay, God, I did these things in your name, but I did them so that I would see and and get some glory from you. The purpose of the works was ultimately to be seen. So Jesus confronts that and says, no, what you're actually working is lawless. You're not basing it upon what God has required or what God desires, your heart, your motive. You're doing good things, but the motivation is not right. You're looking to get your own glory. So Jesus says, instead, do the will of the Father. Do you notice it? You and I are called to surrender the will of the Father, and so when I do anything in my life, I can't take credit for it. When I do good in this life, I can guarantee you it's not Dave Vance doing any good. Dave Vance doesn't do good. Dave Vance does sin. But in Christ, what happens? Christ does the work in me, and slowly now I bring glory to Christ, but I take no credit for that. I can't say, well, I did this in your name, Jesus. I did this in your name. No, no, no. Christ, you did this through a wretched sinner like me. Praise be to you, God. See the difference. In fact, let me give you a question that you can ask if you're wondering, am I I doing this right or not? Am I living this right or not? I want to give you a question that I think is real important to ask, and it's a good one to write down. The question I ask all the time in my own life is, am I looking to please God, or am I looking to trust God? You might say, well, Dave, what's the difference? It's a big difference. If I'm looking to please God, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to continually add religious duty to my life, religious activity to my life, and yet my heart is going to stay the same. I'm trying to accomplish some things and hopefully be blessed in my life, but in the end, my motivation hasn't changed. But when I look to trust Christ, now I realize that Jesus is everything. And when Jesus is everything, I don't have to be everything. When Jesus is everything, It now flows through me, and the good that I do, I don't do for myself. I do because he can do it through me, because he can only do it through me, because I can't do this for his namesake. And so he gets glory through my life. So trusting him versus pleasing him. Do I trust him, or do I please him? The difference will tell you greatly what you're trying to accomplish. let Let me stir this another way. I think he's saying here, we can profess publicly what we do not possess personally. We, we can profess Christ and yet personally not possess who Christ is in our lives. So true identity is, is not determined by what one says. You can say you're a Christian. You can come to church. You can say, I go there or whatever. Right? A true identity is not found in what we say. It's in what we actually do, who we really are for Christ. And not just what we do in accomplishing spiritual activity, but who we are in Christ as it now bursts fruit. And that fruit is good fruit. It's not bad fruit. It's good fruit because it brings glory back to the name of Jesus Christ. So, warning number one, directional differences of life. Warning number two, production differences of life. And now he moves into warning number three, foundational differences in our lives. 
warning about foundation. Here's the question. Warning about foundation. What are you building your life upon? So he says there's one path, there's one voice, and that voice will bear fruit in us. And lastly, there is a foundation that we have to build our lives on. Take a look at what he says. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, not, does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the flood came, the winds blew, beat on the house, but it did not fall. Then the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Same thing happens, but there it says the fall of it was great. What was the difference? Both of these, these builders build a house. They use the same material. They use the same plans. In fact, you would see their houses and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But then when the storm comes, where they're really at is proven. When the storm comes, one house falls, the other stands. Why? And this is pretty cool, but in the first century, um, many of the cities were built on, on mounds, on hills, on, on rock formations. And they would do that to protect themselves from enemies and to be able to have uh, some defense. They would also do it because uh, they would be able to then to to use all the rest of the land for crop below it. And so what would happen is you would have a city and then you would have a valley and then you have another city. And so upon in that mountain, people, as the city began to grow, they would begin to build houses in the rocks. In fact, many of them would hewn uh, their homes right into the caves in that rock. And it was a way that they would be fortified, protected, and yet they would be strong. It wouldn't fall. But as the cities began to be overcrowded, historians write that people began to to make their houses built in the valleys. The problem was, in the Middle Eastern culture, there was rainy season and dry season. And in the rainy season, it would begin to rain, and that valley would feel like a river. And so people would try to get as close to the river as they could. They would be the source of water. But what happened is, at times, there would be torrential rain. There would be that downpour that happens, and those houses would be wiped apart. Why? Because their foundations were made of the sand, were made of the, the, the dirt of the valley, not the rocks of the hills. And so he says, here's the example. He says, one takes great intention. One builds his home, his foundation, on the stable, safe, surviving footing of the rock. The foolish man, he builds it in, in a dangerous, easy place where he maybe doesn't dig very deep, and it's sand, and when the rains come, it doesn't last. And the question Jesus is asking is, what are we building our lives upon? What do we do with the words that we heard? What do we do with the truth? I think what Jesus is saying here is that we struggle with salvation when we don't have a firm foundation. That's kind of the sub-point. We don't have, we struggle with salvation if we don't have a firm foundation. Why do many people wonder about their salvation? Why do many people wonder about their faith? It's because we're, we're uncertain of our foundation. It's because our foundation needs a reminder of refortification. We need to continually come back to the truth, engage the truth, be looking at what Jesus says in the scriptures. Jesus says the storms prove it. In fact, isn't it true when the storms of life come, comes, we don't look at our foundations we, we look at the beams of the house. We look at our walls. We say, well, I'm going to reinforce here, and I'm going to fix this wall. But in the, in the end, it's a foundation. I remember years ago, Alice and I, we were a young family, and we bought a townhouse in, in uh, Washington, D.C. area, and it was expensive area to live, and so we bought this townhouse, and that's all we could afford. And, and we get in there, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't you know, really kept up very well, but we thought we could do some work onto it. But we bought this townhouse, and we got in there, and we noticed the first time it rained, that there was a, a leak in our foundation. There was a leak kind of happening along the walls of the foundation. Now, in my world, because I'm such a handy guy, 
I thought, babe, just give me some duct tape. We'll fix this thing right away. Give me some of that waterproof duct tape. Good to go. No, no, no. They had to come and es- excavate that site. They had to come and dig around it. They had to go down in the, in the foundation. They had to, had to mark it up and reform it and refashion it, right? It was a big job, a huge job. That's the image that we have here. The storms come, and we, we're busy trying to refortify the beams of our home. We're trying to refortify the beams of our life. But the issue is our foundation. Our foundation is vulnerable. And so he says, make sure your foundation is on the rock, is on Christ, is on the promises of God, the Scripture. So what is he saying? I want to summarize this in three kind of sub-points as we end. Number one, a firm foundation will not prevent storms, but it will prevent complete destruction. Storms will reveal what our foundation is like. When a storm comes through, and by the way, Jesus is, is actually talking about the ultimate storm of judgment, but when storms come through, even storms that are temporary in our lives, they reveal what our foundation really is like. Is our foundation set in Jesus Christ? Secondly, you will produce what is in you. Eventually, what is in us, the root that is in us, will it show itself in fruit? The question is, is it good fruit or bad fruit? If not, we need to cut the tree down and start digging our roots in Christ. That's the image. What is in us will come out. You, 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 maybe you're out there, you get angry all the time, you get frustrated. Guess what happened? Your roots are not set in the person of Christ. And so what happens? Eventually the fruit is shown. I know in my own life, right? Anxiety and those type of things. Guess what? They're, they're, they're fruit that is shown that my, my, my foundation, my roots aren't going deep enough to Christ. And so what do I need to do? I need to prune some things. And I, need to dig those, I need to dig those branches deeper. And then lastly, thirdly, you are one step away from being on the right path, bearing the right fruit, and standing on the right foundation. Jesus here gives this invitation to say, listen, here it is. Here it is. There, there, there's, there's two choices of a path. There are two voices you can follow. There's good fruit and bad fruit you can bear. And there's two foundations to build your life. You're one step away from changing that foundation. You're one step away from changing that voice. You're one step away, away from standing on the right path. In fact, the language of this text that we've just read is decisive. What it does is it requires us to decide what way we're on. Are we on the right path? Are we here listening to the right voice? Are we bearing the right fruit? Or do we have the right foundation? It bears us to be decisive. So let me ask you this morning, are you on the right path? Are you on the path that leads to life? Are you on the path that leads to destruction? Secondly, are you listening to the right voice? Have the wolves come in and now you're bearing bad fruit? Or are you listening to the vine where the branches tie in that leads us to bear good fruit, John 15 says. What's your foundation like? Is your foundation right now being shaken by the storms of life? Is your foundation being rocked and you're looking at all the beams of the house, all the beams of life, but it's the foundation, the vulnerability of your foundation that's a struggle and you need to build the foundation of Jesus Christ in your life through his word, through prayer, through, through, through steps of obedience that you can take to say we want a strong foundation deep in the roots of Jesus Christ. Can I be honest with you? I actually believe 
we're educated beyond our obedience. What do I mean? I don't believe we need more information, more knowledge, more understanding to obey to the level that God wants us to. So many people will say, I just need to read another book. I just need to listen to another podcast. I need to get more information. I need to read a commentary and read some Greek words. No, no, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Trust me, I love that stuff. Uh, this is the foundation of our lives. But Jesus here very simply says, there's two paths. There's two voices. There's two foundations. Which do you choose? And he leaves it right there. He believes we have enough information to make the right decision. I want you to see how this ends. Notice the reaction. Verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught with one like authority. In fact, the word astonished there means they were panicked. They were scared. They, they were beyond belief. They pulled back and were like, whoa, 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 what is he saying? He is teaching like he has authority to say these things. And, and this Sermon on the Mount is proof that Jesus has the authority. He does have the last word. In fact, if you go back to verse 23, he says, it says, I will declare. Notice he declares himself to be the judge. I will declare, says the Lord. He declares he is the way. They panic. But then we come to chapter 8. And it says, and when he came down from the mountain... Great crowds followed him. Why? Because they realized he had just given them the answer to life. Oh, oh wait, there's a, found, there, there's a foundation I can build my life upon? There, there's a voice I can follow that leads to good fruit? There, there's a path that looks narrow and difficult and isn't easy, but it leads to life? I want that. I want that. What about you? What path are you on? What fruit are you bearing? What foundation are you standing upon? I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me. And we want to end this series a little bit differently. We, we've been journeying through this series. These words are pretty easy. We're going to sing this song in a moment. But I'm going to ask, we have some people that are going to come down. And we thought we, we, would, we would have failed you if we didn't give an opportunity to respond to what Christ has said for the last few weeks as we've journeyed through this series. We've read Jesus' words. We have thought about Jesus' words. We've contemplated what these mean in our lives. And so we're going to ask those people if they would just make their way down. And I want to tell you something. I want to tell you, listen, Jesus is not just about giving you a better life. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, there is only one life and it's me. It's not just I need a better life. No, no, no. I need a life. And that life is in the person of Jesus Christ. He has the authority to say that. He is the way the truth, and the life. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you're not sure what path you're on. Today, you can know with absolute certainty, not hope so, maybe so, think so, but you can know today that you have Jesus Christ. We would love to pray with you. We're asking you, would you take the step to come and pray with somebody? We're not gonna embarrass you, we're not gonna spam your email, we're just gonna share with you the truth of Jesus Christ. There are some of you, you know Christ. Right now, the foundation isn't settled foundation seems to be shaking and you're looking all over to find the answer the answer is your your foundation is vulnerable and maybe this morning you just want to come and pray for some with somebody you're walking through a storm and it's battering you and beating you and you're wondering am I going to endure this and, and you just want to together by the way this is a safe place 
This is a place where we're all on this journey together. None of us had this figured out. We're all walking with a limp where we need one another in prayer. And so maybe you're here and you're just in boldness would come and pray and say, you know what, I, I feel unsettled right now. I want to firm my foundation in Christ. And you want to pray with somebody who's here to help you. Can I tell you, I love what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, if you're not willing to follow the kingdom of God, then it doesn't matter what you follow. I love that quote because it's true. If you, if you don't want to follow Christ, then go choose anything. Anything, you can choose anything. It doesn't matter. It all leads to the same destination. But if you want to follow Christ, I've got to listen to the right voice. I've got to walk the right path. I've got to... I gotta bear the right fruit. I got to stand on the foundation that is firm in a world where there's chaos, where wolves want to steal, to kill and destroy. Would you bow with me? God, we want to thank you for your word. It's not easy, but it's good. It's not simple, but it's beautiful. God, we thank you for truth. Lord, your word says the truth sets us free. God, it stings, but there's freedom. The path is rocky, and it goes up and down and moves, and it's difficult. But in it, there is freedom. There is life. Life in your name, Jesus. Jesus, our foundation. Jesus, our path. Jesus, our voice, who can bear fruit for us for eternity, not for our glory, but your glory and your glory alone. God, we thank you and praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen. Let's sing this song. If you want to come pray, we'd love to pray with you. Let's sing to him.